The gods offered the beasts the ability to communicate with humanoids, but the griffins, seeing no reason to have speech with such lesser creatures, proudly declined. In this, and in most other things, griffins consider themselves superior to dragons. Over the centuries, however, as the griffins and the elves developed their unique bond, members of the elven royal family learned to communicate mind-to-mind with the winged beasts. Lorana had acted often as her father's emissary to those griffins who had made their home near Qualinesti. She knew how to treat them with the courtesy and respect they required, and she could understand the gist of what they were saying, if not their precise words. The beast's thoughts entered her head. The griffin wanted to know if she was truly daughter of the Speaker of the Sun of Qualinesti. The griffin was clearly dubious. Lorana couldn't blame the beast. She did not look much like an elf princess. I have the honor to be the daughter of my father, the speaker of the son of Qualinesti. Lorana managed the correct reply, though she was considerably startled by the question. Forgive my asking, great one, but how do you know me? How did you know where to find me? What is going on? Derek asked in a low voice. Does she really expect us to believe she is communicating with these monsters? Elistan cast him a rebuking glance. Like many members of the Qualinesti and Sylvanesti royal families, Lorana has the ability to mentally communicate with griffins. Derek shook his head in disbelief and whispered to Brian, Be ready to fight our way out of this. The griffin continued to inspect Lorana, looking her up and down, and apparently decided to believe her. The griffin told her they were sent by Lady Alhana Starbreeze to take the daughter of the Speaker of the Sun and her brother wherever they wanted to go. That explained the mystery. Lorana had heard from Gilthanus how he and Tanis and the others had met the Sylvanesti princess and how they had saved Alhana from being thrown into a Tarsian prison. The Sylvanesti princess was mindful of her debt to them, it seemed. She had sent the griffins to find them and make certain they were safe. Lorana clasped her hands. She forgot the formalities in her joy. You can take us home, she cried, to Qualinesti. The griffin assented. Lorana longed for home, to be once more in her father's warm embrace, to see again the green woodlands and the sparkling rivers, to breathe the perfumed air and hear the soft, sweet music of flute and harp, to know she was safe and loved, to lie down among the tall green grass, there to drift into deep and dreamless sleep. Lorana forgot, in her dream of home, that her people had been driven from Qualinesti, that they were living in exile. But even if she had remembered, it would not have made much difference. Gilvanus, Lorana cried to her brother in Elvish, they have come to take us home, she flushed, remembering that the others could not understand her, and then repeated her words in common. She looked back at the griffins. Will you take my friends as well? The griffins did not appear at all pleased with this. They glared at the knights and looked extremely hostile at the sight of the kender, who had at last managed to climb out of the ditch and was saying excitedly, Do I really get to fly on a griffin? I've never done that before. I rode on a pegasus once. The griffins conferred, cawing raucously, and at length agreed to carry the others. Lorana had the vague impression that Lady Alhana had asked them for this favor, though she guessed the griffins would not admit it. They laid down many conditions, however, before they would consent to let the others come near them, 
particularly the Kender and the Knights. Lorana turned to give the others the good news, only to find her words met with grim, dubious, or uneasy looks. You and your brother and the rest may fly off with these creatures if you choose, Lady Lorana, Derek said coldly. But the Kender stays with us. What if the Kender doesn't want to stay with you? Tasselhoff demanded, but everyone ignored him. Gilthanus was on his feet. His jaw was swollen, but he had his wits about him. I'm staying with the knights, he said in Elvish. I'm not going to let them get hold of this dragon orb, and I think you should stay, too. Lorana stared at him in dismay. Gil, this is some tale Tass made up. Gilthanus shook his head. You're wrong about that. The knights discovered confirmation of the orb's existence in the library back in Tarsus. If there is a chance a dragon orb has survived all these centuries, I want to be the one to find it. What are you two jabbering about? Derek demanded suspiciously. Speak common, so that we may all understand. Stay with me, Lorana, her brother urged, continuing to speak in Elvish. Help me recover this orb. Do this for the sake of our people, instead of wallowing in grief over the half-elf. Tanis gave his life for mine, Lorana cried in a choked voice. I would be dead if he hadn't. But Gilthanus wasn't listening. Glancing at the knights, then turning back to his sister, he said, speaking common, Ask the griffins to take us to Ice Reach. Derek, Aaron, and Brian exchanged glances. Although unorthodox, this mode of transportation solved all their problems. The griffins could fly over the sea and thereby take them directly to their destination, saving them days and perhaps weeks of travel, even if they could find a ship, which was not guaranteed. Gil, please... Let's just go home, Lorana begged. We will go home, Lorana, once we have the dragon orb, Gilthanus replied. Will you desert our friends in this time of peril? Leave them behind. Our friends would not abandon you. Ask Sturm what he intends to do. None of her friends had spoken yet. They had been watching and listening in silence, not thinking it right to intervene. They regarded her with sympathy, preparing to offer comfort, understanding her need, leaving the decision to her. What should I do? she asked Sturm. Tell the griffins to take you home, Lorana, he said gently. The rest of us will travel to Ice Reach. Lorana shook her head. You don't understand. The griffins will take you, humans, only if I am with you. I'm the only one who can understand them. Gilthanus never had the patience to learn. Then we will find our way to Ice Reach without their help, Flint declared. You could come back to Qualinesti with me, Lorana said. Why don't you? It's the Kender, Flint explained. The knights plan to take him to Ice Reach. I don't understand, said Lorana. If Taz doesn't want to go, Derek can't make him. You tell her, Flint said, nudging Sturm. Sturm hesitated, then said, I think Tass should go, Lorana. I agree that this dragon orb may be of great help to us, and if Tass goes, he paused, then said, Derek would not hesitate to sacrifice his life for his cause, Lorana, and he would not hesitate to sacrifice the lives of others. Do you understand? I go with Sturm and the Knights, said Flint, adding gruffly. After all, someone has to protect them from Tasselhoff. The dwarf reached out, awkwardly patted her hand. Sturm is right. 
You go home, Lorana. We'll manage. Lorana looked last to Elistan, her mentor, her guide. He lightly touched the medallion of Paladine he wore around his neck. He was saying she should turn to Paladine in her trouble. Lorana had no need to ask the god. She knew what she wanted to do, and she knew what she had to do. She could not fly off to safety and leave her friends to face a long and dangerous trek to Ice Reach, not when she could provide them with safe, swift transport. Gilthanus was right. She could not desert friends who would never think of deserting her. Lorana gave one last longing thought to her homeland, then left her friends and walked back to the Griffins. I thank you for your offer to take us to Qualinesti, she said. Her voice quivered as she began, but grew stronger as she proceeded. However, we have urgent business to the south in Ice Reach. I was wondering if you would take my friends and me to that land. Derek said loudly, Tell the beasts that an evil elf wizard named Fiel Thos is Dragon Highlord of Ice Reach, and that we go to destroy him. The Griffins appeared highly amused by this. Several cawed loudly and stomped their hind feet and twitched their lion tails. The leader rubbed his beak with a talon and told Lorana that they knew of this Fiel Thos. He was a dark elf cast out of Sylvanesti before the cataclysm for murdering his lover, and he was an extremely powerful wizard who would not be taken down by a handful of iron-clad fools. The griffin advised her that her first course of action was wise. The beast told her to return home to her father, where she belonged. I thank you, great one, Lorana said, gently but firmly, but we will travel to Ice Reach. The griffin's admonition to go home where she belonged, as though she were some errant heedless child, stung Lorana. She had been just such a child once, but no more. If you will not take us, she continued, seeing the griffins about to refuse, then we must travel to that land on our own. When you return to Sylvanesti, give the Lady Alhana my grateful thanks for her care and concern. The griffin mulled over her request. The griffin would be forced to tell Lady Alhana that he had refused to carry Lorana and the others to her chosen destination. Griffins do not consider themselves obliged to serve elves they are not bonded to, but they had agreed to this task, and the beasts would consider themselves honor-bound to undertake it. Besides, on consideration, Ice Reach was close to their home, which was near Sylvanesti. Qualinesti was far away. We will take you, the griffin agreed grudgingly. For the sake of Lady Alhana. I thank you and your brethren with all my heart, said Lorana, bowing. I will give you rich reward when I am in my own homeland and able to do so. The griffin grunted. He appreciated the gesture, though the beast obviously doubted that Lorana would live long enough to fulfill her promise. Flint glowered at the thought of riding a griffin, especially without a saddle. It is not much different from riding a horse bareback, Gilthanus told him soothingly. Except if you fall off a horse, you get bumps and bruises, Flint pointed out. Whereas, if I fall off that great beast, I will end up splattered over a lot of ground. He continued to mutter his protests, even as he allowed Sturm to assist him onto the griffin's back. Lorana instructed the dwarf to sit forward of the wings and hang on tightly, keeping his arms around the griffin's neck. 
The last was unnecessary, for Flint had hold of the griffin in a grip that appeared likely to strangle the beast. Don't look down. If you feel giddy once you are airborne, close your eyes or bury your head in the griffin's mane, she told him. At this, Flint looked triumphantly at Tasselhoff. I told you griffins had manes, you doorknob. But Flint, Tass returned, the griffin's mane is made of feathers. The mane on your helm is horsehair. It is the mane of a griffin, Flint insisted. He sat bolt upright after that and eased up on his grip, trying to look as though flying on griffinback was something dwarves did on a daily basis. The knights were ill at ease. Aaron said he feared he was too heavy. The beast could not bear his weight. The griffin only snorted and shook his head and twitched his tail in impatience to be gone. Reluctantly, Aaron and Brian mounted their beasts. Sturm took charge of Tasselhoff, who was overheard asking the griffins if they could take him to visit Lunatari after they stopped at Ice Reach. If Derek had doubts, he resolutely kept them to himself. When everyone was mounted, the lead griffin, bearing Lorana, leapt into the air, and the rest followed. Lorana had flown on griffins before. She was used to flight, and she kept a concerned watch on her companions. Brian had gone deathly pale as they soared into the air, but once airborne, he stared down at the ground unrolling beneath him and gasped in awe and delighted wonder. Derek was stern and grim, lips pressed tightly together. He did not look down, but he did not hide his face either. Aaron was enjoying himself. He yelled out that they should try to convince the Griffins to carry them into battle as the Dark Queen's minions rode their evil dragons. Sturm had all he could do to keep tight hold of Tasselhoff, who nearly tumbled off in his efforts to grab a cloud. Beneath them was the plains of dust, white with snow. They saw a band of plainsmen who halted in their travels and gazed upward as the shadows of the griffins flowed over them. The beasts flew over Rigget, and though they saw no signs of the dragon army, they could see the wharf crowded with people eager to flee. Only a few ships were in the harbor, far too few to carry all those seeking passage. Leaving Rigget behind, they flew over the gray-blue sea, and now all of them buried their heads in the griffins' manes, not from fear, but for warmth. The frigid wind blowing off the glacier stung their cheeks and burned their eyes and froze their breath. When the griffins began to spiral downward, Lorana peeped out from the feathers to see beneath her a white land of blue shadows, frozen and empty. She laid her head among the griffins' feathers, and pictured her homeland, where it was always springtime, the air always warm, perfumed with the scents of roses, lavender, and honeysuckle. Her tears froze on her skin. 6. High Lords, High Treason Kitiara's journey from Tarsus to Naraka was not a pleasant one. The skies were gray and overcast, a chill, drizzling rain mixed with snow fell almost the entire trip. She was chilled and wet all the time. When they stopped at night to rest, she could not build a fire to warm herself, for the only wood she could find was soaked. The blue dragon was respectful to her and deferential, but he wasn't sky. She couldn't talk to this dragon about her plans and schemes, couldn't visit with him while he crunched beef bones from a stolen cow and she stewed a rabbit. Kitiara was angry at Skye. He had no right to make such accusations. 
yet she found herself hoping the dragon would think better of his temper fit and come in search of her, ready to apologize. Sky did not appear, however. They arrived at Naraka as darkness was falling. Kitiara sent the blue to the dragon stables, telling the beast to be ready to depart the moment the meeting was adjourned. Kitiara made her way through the crowded streets to the Broken Shield Inn. She was cold, hungry, and wanted a warm bed, a blazing fire, and hot, spiced wine. But when she arrived, she was told, regrettably, that there was no room. The inn was filled to capacity with High Lord Toad's personal staff, retinue, soldiers, and bodyguards. Kitiara could have slept in her own private quarters in the Temple of the Dark Queen, but those chambers were cold, gloomy, and comfortless, not to say unsettling. The gates were trapped with deadly magics, and she would have to remember the password and hand over her weapons and answer a lot of fool questions. She got on well enough with the draconian guards, but she couldn't abide the dark priests slinking about in their heavy black woolen robes that always smelt of incense, cheap dye, and damp sheep. The fire in her grate in the temple would be small and feeble, almost as if the Night Lord was wary of any source of light invading his sacred darkness. There would be no spiced wine, for strong drink was forbidden on temple grounds, and Kittyara believed, as did Ariakas, that while she was there, unfriendly eyes were watching her, ears were listening. Seeing the rage in Kit's dark eyes when told there was no room, the innkeeper recalled suddenly that there might be one available. He hastily sent his servants to remove two of Toad's henchmen who had drunk themselves into a stupor. It took six men to haul the dead-drunk hobgoblins out of their beds, and they woke the next morning to discover, to their bleary astonishment, that they'd spent the night in the stables. Kitiara took over their room, aired it out well, drank several mugs of the warming wine, and fell into bed. Since this was an emergency meeting of the Dragon High Lords, there was none of the ceremony generally attendant upon such an exalted gathering. Formal meetings of the High Lords were accompanied by parades of soldiers dressed in shining armor, marching through the streets with standards flying. As it was, few people in Naraka knew the High Lords were in town. Two, Salah Khan and Lucian Takar, were accompanied by their personal staff and bodyguards. Two others, Kitiara and Fiel Thas, traveled alone. The newly promoted High Lord Toad was the only one to bring his entourage. Toad had hoped to be able to triumphantly parade his troops, with himself mounted upon a black stallion, through the streets of Naraka. Various difficulties crushed the Hobbs' dreams. The stallion bolted at the smell of him. Half his soldiers had deserted during the night, and the other half were too drunk to stand. Toad had to content himself with attending his first meeting, resplendent in a suit of dragon armor, the scales of which weighed nearly as much as if they were still on the dragon, causing the poor Hob considerable pain and discomfort, and hampering his mobility to such an extent that, in lieu of riding on the black stallion, he had to be hauled to the meeting in a hay wagon. The helm obscured his vision, and his sword tangled his legs, tripping him, but Toad thought he looked sublime, every inch the High Lord, and he anticipated making a grand entrance. The meeting was scheduled for early in the morning. Kit left orders to be awakened at dawn and went to bed early. Takesis was almost immediately in her dreams again, prodding her to go to Dargard Keep. Kit refused. 
The Dark Queen scolded and taunted, sneered at Kittyara, called her a coward. Kittyara pulled her pillow over her head, and either the Dark Queen grew weary of badgering her, or Kittyara was so tired that she slipped beneath the dreams into exhausted slumber. At the appointed hour, someone came banging on her door. Kittyara swore at them and told them to go away. When she finally woke up, it was to bright sunlight and the panicked feeling she was late. Muddle-headed and sluggish, Kit hurriedly dressed herself in her gambeson and put her armor on over that. She had given orders to have her armor polished and her boots cleaned, and this had been done, though the job was not up to her standards. No time to remedy that, however. She was going to be late as it was. Her temples throbbed from lack of sleep and too much wine. She wished her head were clearer so that she could think better. Accoutred in her blue dragon scale armor and cloaked in a long blue velvet cape that was sadly wrinkled from having been stuffed into her traveling bag, Kittyara placed the helm of the dragon high lord on her head and set forth. The meeting was being held in the blue quarter, in the headquarters building of the blue wing, the same building where Kit had first heard about Tanis, first heard Ariakas's idiot scheme regarding the dragon orb, first met Ariakas's witch, whose name she could not recall. Citizens and soldiers alike made way for Kittyara, and many cheered her. She cut a fine figure, walking tall and proud, her hand on her sword's hilt. Kit enjoyed the walk. The cold air blew away the fumes of the wine. The cheers braced and emboldened her. Kittyara took her time, accepted the crowd's adulation. The other high lords could wait for her, she decided. She was not going to rush on account of the likes of Toad and that bastard V.L. Foss. She had a few things to say to Ariakas about him as well. The high lords had gathered in the dining hall of the Blue Wing, the only building large enough to hold them and their bodyguards. Since no high lord trusted the others, the bodyguards were considered indispensable. Lucian of Takar, High Lord of the Black Army, who was half human and half ogre, brought with him two immense ogres, who towered over everyone in the room and gave off the stench of rotting meat. Salah Khan was High Lord of the Green Army. He was human. His people were desert-dwelling nomads with a love for battle. He was accompanied by six human males, armed with long, curve-bladed knives thrust into their belts and scimitars on their hips. Fewmaster Toad came surrounded by thirty hobgoblin guards, all armed to the teeth, and all of them clustered protectively around Toad, who could barely be seen in their midst. Ariakas banned all but six of the hobs from entering. Weighed down by his armor, Toad clunked into the meeting room, guided by his guards, for he was having difficulty seeing through his ornate helm. Toad greeted the other high lords with much slavering and slobbering. Ariakas ignored him. Lucian regarded him with disgust, and Salah Khan with disdain. Though he could not see all that well, Toad felt the distinct chill in the atmosphere, and he retired precipitously behind his bodyguards. He spent the rest of the time poking his hobs in their backs, urging them to remain alert. Fiel Thos strode into the room alone, accompanied by a great white wolf that padded silently at his side. No men-at-arms tripping on your heels, Fielthos? asked Dariacus, who was himself accompanied by six Bozak draconians. One of them, a Bozak with a deformed wing, was one of the largest draconians any of them had ever seen. Why should I bring guards, my lord? 
Fielthas asked with a look of feigned surprise. We are all friends here, are we not? Some more than others, growled Lucian. Salah Khan grunted his agreement, and Ariakas chuckled. Neither of the other high lords liked or trusted the dark elf. They would have turned on him in an instant, their knives out for blood, except for Ariakas. The emperor himself had no great love for the elf, nor did Queen Takesis. They tolerated him because, for the moment, he was useful to them. Let him cease being useful, and their support would end. Besides, Fielthas added, wrapping his fur robes around him, I see so little in this room to fear. Salakan, whose temper was legendary, bounded to his feet, drawing his sword. Lucian, fists clenched, was rising from his chair, and Toad was eyeing the nearest exit. The bent-winged Bozak drew a sword as large as some humans were tall, and took his place in front of the emperor. Fielthas sat unperturbed, his long, thin-fingered hands folded on the table. The white wolf growled menacingly and put its head down, tail twitching. Sheath your sword, Salah Khan, ordered Ariakas good-humoredly, a fond parent separating quarreling children. Sit down, Lucian. We are here on important business. Fielthas, bring that beast of yours to heel. When order had been more or less restored, he added with a grimace, We're all a bit irritable. If you're like me, you got little sleep last night. I slept fine, your lordship, said Toad loudly. No one answered him, and thinking they could not understand his words, he managed, with the help of two of his guards, to extricate himself from his helm. I worship and respect her dark majesty, Sala Khan was saying, treading cautiously. No one more. But it is impossible for me to leave the war in the east to travel to Dargard Keep. I wish Her Majesty could be made to understand this. If you were to have a word with her, Emperor. What's this about Dargard Keep? Toad asked, mopping his brow. She plagues me as she does you, Salakan, Ariakas returned. She is obsessed with this notion of bringing Soth into the war. She talks of nothing else, except that and finding the green gemstone man. Lord Soth? Toad asked. Who is Lord Saul? Personally, I do not want this death knight anywhere near me. Consider his arrogance. He sets us a test. Fielthas shrugged. He should be honored to serve any one of us. Almost any one of us, he amended. Oh, that, Lord Saul, said Toad with a knowing wink. He approached me, offered to work for me. I turned him down, of course. Soth, I said. I call him Soth, you see, and he calls me. Where the devil is Kitiara? Ariakas demanded, slamming his hands on the table. He turned to a servant. Go fetch her. The servant departed, only to come back to say that the blue lady was at that moment entering the building. Ariakas exchanged a few words with the bent-wing Bozak. He and several Boz Draconians took up positions on either side of the door. Lucian and Salah Khan glanced at each other, wondering what was up. Though neither knew, they both sensed trouble and kept their hands near their weapons. Toad was having some difficulty seeing over the heads and shoulders of his bodyguards, but he had the uncomfortable feeling that something dire was about to happen, and the only exit was now being blocked by six large bozaks. The hob gave an inward groan. Fiel Thos, who had written the letter betraying Kitiara, 
was able to guess what was about to happen. He waited with anticipation. He had never forgiven her for killing his guardian. Booted footsteps rang in the hallway, then Kitiara's raised voice calling jocular greeting to the guards. Ariakas's dark, baleful gaze was fixed on the entrance. The Bozaks flanking the door tensed. Kitiara strolled inside, her sword clattering at her hip, her blue cape flowing after her. She carried her helm beneath her arm. My lord, Ariakas, she began, about to raise her hand in salute. The bent-wing Bozak seized hold of her, pinning her by the arms. A second Bozak grabbed her sword and yanked it from its sheath. Kitiara Uthmatar, said Ariakas in sonorous tones, rising ponderously to his feet. You are under arrest on a charge of high treason. If you are found guilty, the penalty for your crime is death. Kitiara stood frozen, staring, open-mouthed and confounded. So astonished, she made no attempt to resist. Her first thought was, this was some sort of jest. Ariakas was noted for his perverted sense of humor. She saw in his eyes, however, that he was serious, deadly serious. Kitiara looked swiftly around the room. She saw the other high lords, three of them as astonished as herself, and she realized they had not been brought here for a meeting. This was a trial. These men were her judges, each one of whom coveted her position as high lord of the Blue Dragon Army. Even as she realized this, she saw each man's shock give way to pleasure, saw each cast dark glances at his compatriots, plotting and scheming how best to attain her position. In their minds, she was already dead. Kitiara's impulse then was to fight, but that came a little too late. Her sword was gone. She was in the firm and painful grasp of an enormous Bozak, who was armed with both a sword and powerful magics. The thought crossed Kit's mind that it would be better to fight a hopeless battle to the death now than face whatever torment Ariakas had in mind for her. She restrained herself, however. The Salamniks have My Honor is My Life as their credo. Kit's was Never Say Die. She recovered her composure. She had not always obeyed Ariakas's orders. She had gone off on raiding parties when she should have been laying boring siege to some castle. She had appropriated for the use of her troops certain tax revenues meant to go to the emperor. None of these offenses could be termed crimes of high treason, however, though of course the emperor could call stealing a meat pie from his table high treason, if he chose. Kit had no idea what all this was about. Then she saw the faint smile upon the lips of Fiel Foss, and Kit immediately recognized her enemy. She stood tall and straight, fearless and dignified in the grasp of her captors, and faced Ariakas. What is the meaning of this, my lord? Kitiara demanded with an air of injured innocence. What act of high treason have I committed? I have served you faithfully. Tell me, my lord, I do not understand. You are charged with plotting the murder of Dragon High Lord Verminard and hiring assassins to carry it out. Kitiara's jaw dropped. The irony was chilling. She was being charged with the one crime of which she was innocent. She glanced at Fiel Thas, saw the faint smile broaden, and she snapped her jaw shut with a click of her teeth. Her voice trembling with rage, Kitiara stated, I utterly refute and deny that charge, my lord. Lord Toad, said Ariakas, 
Did High Lord Kitiara ask you in a most suspicious manner for information regarding the felons who assassinated Verminard? Toad managed to worm his way through the forest of his bodyguards and said with a gasp and many moppings of his brow, She did, my lord. I did not, Kitiara retorted. Did she talk to a man called Eben Shatterstone, also seeking information about these people? She did, my lord, Toad said, proud of being the center of attention. The wretch told me so himself. Kitiara would have liked to choke the hobgoblin until his beady little eyes popped out of his yellow head, but the bent-wing Bozak had a grip of steel on her, and she could not break free. She contented herself with shooting Toad a look so threatening and malevolent that Toad shriveled up and shrank back, terrified among his bodyguards. She should be in manacles, my lord, the hob quavered. Put her in leg irons. Kitiara turned to Ariakas. If you have no other evidence besides the word of this quivering mound of goo, the emperor has my evidence, said Thealthos, gathering his robes about him. He rose gracefully to his feet, his motion slow and unhurried. As many of you know, he said, speaking to the group at large, I am a winter Norn. I will not go into detail explaining this magical skill to the uninitiated. Suffice it to say, a winter Norn has the power to delve deep into the heart of another. I looked into your heart, High Lord Kitiara, when you were gracious enough to visit me in my ice-bound solitude, and I saw the truth. You sent these assassins to kill Lord Verminard, hoping to succeed him as High Lord of the Red Dragon Army. Lies! Liar! Kitiara lunged at Thialthas in such fury that the Bozak holding her was nearly dragged off his clawed feet. I should have killed you at Ice Reach! Thialthas glanced at Ariakas as much as to say, do you require any more proof, my lord? And sat down, undisturbed by Kit's ravings. Realizing she had only made matters worse, Kitiara managed to regain some semblance of calm. Do you believe him, my lord, a shit-eating elf, or will you believe me? I had nothing to do with the death of Verminard. He died through his own folly. Ariakas removed his sword and tossed it on the table. Hi, lords, you have heard the evidence. What is your verdict? Is Kitiara Uthmatar guilty of the murder of High Lord Verminard, or do you find her innocent? Guilty, said Lucian with an ogreish grin. Guilty, said Salakan, his dark eyes glinting. Guilty, guilty, cried Toad, then added nervously. Therefore, she should most definitely be in leg irons. I am sorry, Kitiara said Thas gravely. I enjoyed our meeting at Ice Reach, but my duty is to my emperor. I must find you guilty. Ariakas shifted the sword around. The point faced Kitiara. Kitiara, Athmatar, you have been found guilty of the death of a dragon high lord. The punishment for that crime is death. At dawn tomorrow, you will be taken to the arena of death where you will be hanged, drawn, and quartered. The remains of your body will be placed upon pikes at the temple gates to serve as a warning to others. Kitiara stood still. She no longer struggled. Her ravings ceased. You are making a terrible mistake, my lord, she said calmly. 
I have been loyal to you when all these others have been false. But no longer, my lord, no more. It is you who have betrayed me. Ariakas made a gesture to the bent-wing Bozak, as if tossing out garbage. Take her away. Where to, my lord? the Bozak asked. Does she go to the pen or to the dungeons in the temple? Ariakas considered. The pen was the local prison house, and it was always overcrowded, verging on chaos half the time. Escapes were not common, but they did occur, and if anyone could manage to escape confinement, it would be Kitiara. She would be put into a cell with other prisoners, male prisoners. He could picture her seducing the jailer, her guards, her fellow inmates, rousing them all to revolt. The dungeons in the temple were more secure and less crowded. Most political prisoners were jailed there, yet Ariakas hesitated to send Kitiara to the temple. The dark priests and the night lord had no love for Kitiara, who had stated openly she considered them lazy toadies who did nothing except eat and sleep, while the military undertook the hard and thankless work of winning the war. Still, the night lord was jealous of Ariakas, and Kit might find a way to win him to her side. No matter where she was incarcerated, so long as she lived, Kitiara was a danger. Ariakas began to wish he'd scheduled her execution immediately, not waited for the public spectacle. Too late to change his mind. The other high lords would scent weakness. He could think of only one place where she would be safe and completely inaccessible to anyone. Lock her up in the storeroom in my private chambers in the temple, Ariakas said. Post guards at her door. No one is to enter my chambers. No one is to speak to her. Any who fail me in this will suffer a fate identical to hers. The bent-wing Bozak saluted and started to lead Kitiara out the door. She had one last bold and desperate plan in mind. She had only to decide where and when to strike. As if reading her mind, Ariakas remarked casually, Oh, and by the way, Targ, be careful. She has a knife concealed in her dragon-scale armor. The knife, the draconian demanded, holding out his clawed hand. Kitiara glared at him defiantly and made no move to comply. You can either show Targ where it is, Kitiara, said Ariakas dryly, or he will strip you naked here and now. Kitiara showed Targ where to find the knife. The Bozak removed the weapon and then took off all her armor, leaving her in her gambeson. He searched her again from head to toe just in case, and then placed her in the custody of two Boz Draconians. Kit endured these indignities with her head held high, her fists clenched. She'd be damned if she would give her enemies the satisfaction of seeing her sweat. Take her out, ordered Ariakas. As the Boz were about to haul her away, Kitiara turned to Fiel Thos. You have the gift to look into hearts, she said. Look into mine, now. Fielthas was startled. He was about to refuse, but he saw Ariakas watching him, and the thought came to him that this was some sort of test. Perhaps she meant to prove him a liar. Shrugging, he did as she requested. He cast the spell of the winter norn and gazed into her heart. He saw three Salomnic knights and a powerful cleric of Paladine leaving Tarsus, traveling the road to Ice Reach, intent upon stealing his dragon orb. Fiel Thos shivered in rage, as though he'd been nipped by his own chill winds. He stood up from the table. 
I beg your pardon, my lord, but I must leave at once. The elf cast a pale, cold glance at Kitiara. Events require my immediate return to Ice Reach. The other High Lord stared at him. Kitiara's lip curled. Turning on her heel, she allowed her captors to lead her away. The Emperor looked out his window where he had once stood with Kit, watching traitors hang. Kit walked down the street in the midst of her guards, her head high, shoulders thrown back. She was laughing. What a woman, Ariakas muttered. What a woman. On their way to the temple, Kitihara attempted to bribe her Ba's guards. The bent-wing Bozak heard her talking to them, and he ordered the two to leave, replacing them with two more. Next, Kit tried to bribe the Bozak. Targ didn't even deign to reply to her generous offer. Kitiara sighed inwardly. She had guessed the attempt would fail, for the draconian guards were known to be extremely loyal to Ariakas. Still, it had been worth the attempt. The Bozak would report back to Ariakas that she'd tried to bribe them. But what did that matter? What would he do to punish her? He couldn't kill her twice. Ariakas's servant had run ahead of them to alert the temple authorities. When informed that he was to house a high lord on charges of treason, the night lord was confounded, did not know how to react. He was angered at first. He felt he should have been informed of Kitiara's treachery and consulted in the decision to execute her. He most certainly should have been told in advance that Ariakas planned to imprison her inside the temple. That being said, the night lord was not sorry to see the arrogant blue lady humbled and humiliated, nor would he fail to enjoy watching her execution. The Night Lord sent a terse reply back to Ariakas, but that was the extent of his protest. He dispatched several acolytes to the arena of death to ensure that his private box was supplied with food in case Kitiara's demise was prolonged. People had been known to survive an amazingly long time in screaming agony after having been disemboweled. The Temple of Naraka was located in the center of the city, which had grown up around it. The temple existed simultaneously on two planes, the material and the spiritual, and was a strange and eerie place. One felt as if one were walking in a building that existed in a dream rather than reality, organic in nature, having sprouted from the seed of the foundation stone. The temple's walls were twisted and misshapen, its hallways twisting and tortured. As in a dream, corridors that appeared to be short and straight were actually long and winding. Those who attempted to walk through the temple alone without the guidance of the dark priests would either end up lost or insane. Kitiara, like the other high lords, had her own furnished quarters in the temple. Each high lord had his own entrance, guarded by his own soldiers. The high lords used these only on ceremonial occasions, all of them preferring the warm and homely comforts of an inn or even their own barracks to the unnerving atmosphere of the temple. Ariakas's imperial suite was the most luxurious in the temple, second only to that of the night lord. Ariakas rarely spent much time there. He did not trust the night lord, nor did the night lord trust him. The Bozak, Targ, knew his way around the temple, but he was glad to have one of the dark priests serve as escort. They marched Kitiara through the distorted halls, but even those who worked in the temple often found the hallways confusing. Their escort was forced to halt at one point to wait for another dark pilgrim to provide direction. 
as Kitiara trudged along in between the two bars, who wouldn't even look at her, much less speak to her, she tried to devise some plan of escape. Ariakas was smart. The temple made an excellent prison. Even if she managed to free herself from her confinement, she might wander these halls forever and never find the way out. The dark priests would not help her. They would be just as happy to see her dead. This was the end. She was finished. She cursed that idiot Verminard for getting himself assassinated, cursed Tanis for killing him, cursed Fiel Thos for spying on her, cursed Toad for having been born, and cursed Ariacus for not letting her pursue the war in Salamnia. Fighting the knights would have kept her out of trouble. The bent-wing Bozak, Targ, led her to the Imperial Suite, which was located far below ground level, hidden from public view. The chambers belonging to the High Lords were all at the top of the temple structure, above the Hall of Audience. Kit had often wondered why Ariacus had chosen subterranean rooms for his apartment. When she saw them, she understood. This was not a dwelling place. It was a bunker. Here, underground, accessible only by a steeply winding staircase, were quarters for his troops and an attached storehouse stocked with supplies. A small force could hold out here for a long time, perhaps indefinitely. The priest lit a torch and went on ahead down the staircase to disable the traps. The air was fetid and damp. Murder holes lined the walls. Any force descending those stairs would have to move in single file, and the narrow stairs were deliberately rough and uneven. Even the draconians with their clawed feet had to watch their footing or risk a fall. At the bottom, a massive iron door, operated by a complex mechanism, stood open. The Bozaks led Kit through this door and into the apartments that were spacious, luxurious, dark, and oppressive. No wonder Ariakas refused to live here, Kitiara thought with a shiver. This was where, if all went badly, he would make his final stand, fight his last battle, and if defeat were imminent, this was where he would die. At least he would die fighting, Kitiara reflected bitterly. Ariakas had said she was to be locked in the storeroom. Targ escorted her to the room, which turned out to be a large pantry, dark and windowless, off the kitchen. The dark pilgrim brought her a blanket to spread on the cold stone floor and a slop bucket for her needs, and asked if she wanted anything to eat. Kit declined with scorn. The truth was, her stomach was clenched in knots. She feared she would throw up if she ate a morsel. The dark priest asked about manacles. Despite Toad's insistence on shackling Kit, the Bozak had not thought to bring any along, and there were none to be found in the apartment. At length it was decided between Targ and the priest that, for the moment, manacles would be unnecessary. Kit obviously was not going anywhere until morning, when she would be led to her execution. The priest promised he would have manacles for her then. Targ shoved her inside the storeroom and started to shut the door. Targ, tell Ariakas I am innocent, Kitiara pleaded with the draconian. Tell him I can prove it, if he will only come to see me. Targ slammed the door shut and turned the key in the lock. Alone, in pitch darkness, Kitiara heard the clawed feet of the Bozak scraping over the stone floor. Then there was silence. She could hear the beating of her own heart each beat falling into the silence like grains of sand, counting out the seconds to her death. 
Kitiara listened to her heartbeat until the thudding grew so loud the walls of her prison seemed to expand and contract with this sound. Kit was, for the first time in her life, almost sick with fear. She had witnessed people being hanged, drawn, and quartered. The ordeal was terrible. She'd known veteran soldiers forced to turn away their heads, unable to stomach the gruesome sight. First she would be hanged, but not until she died, only until she lost consciousness. Then she would be roused and staked down on the ground. The executioner would cut her organs from her still-living body. Screaming and writhing in unbearable agony, she would be forced to watch as her entrails were thrown into a fire and burned. She would be left to slowly bleed to death, until near the end they would hack the limbs from her body and cut off her head. The various parts of her would be thrust onto pikes and left to rot at the temple gates. Kittyara imagined what the knife would feel like as it sliced into her gut. She imagined the cheers of the crowd as the blood spurted, cheers that, though loud, would not drown out her screams. The chill sweat rolled down her face and neck. Her stomach heaved. Her hands began to shake. She could not swallow. She could not breathe. She gasped for air and jumped to her feet with some wild idea of flinging herself headlong into the wall to end it by dashing out her brains against the stone. Reason prevailed. Fearing she was on the verge of madness, she forced herself to think this through. She was down, but not out. It was only mid-morning. She had the rest of the day and all the night to come up with a plan of escape. What then? What if she did escape? Kittyara sank down upon the chair. She would be alive, that was true, and that counted for something, but she would spend the rest of her life on the run. She, who had been a dragon high lord, a leader of armies, a conqueror of nations, would now skulk about the woods, forced to sleep in caves, reduced to thieving. The ignominy and shame of such a wretched existence would be harder for her to endure than the few terrible hours of agony she would suffer at her execution. Kittyara let her head sink into her hands. A single tear burned her cheek. She angrily dashed it away. She had never known such despair, never been in such a hopeless position. She might try to make a bargain with Ariakas, but she had nothing to give. A bargain. Kittyara raised her head. She stared into the darkness. She could strike a bargain, but not with Ariakas. Someone higher. She didn't know if it would work. Half of her thought it might. The other half scoffed. Still, it was worth a try. Kittyara had never in her life asked a boon of anyone. She had never said a prayer, was not even certain how one went about praying. Priests and clerics went down on their knees humiliated and abased themselves before the god. Kittyara did not think any god would be pleased with that, particularly a strong goddess, a warrior goddess, a goddess who had dared to wage war on earth and in heaven. Kittyara stood up. She clenched her fists and shouted out, Queen Tachesis, you want Lord Soth. I can bring him to you. I am the only one of your high lords, my queen, with the skill and the courage to confront the death knight in his keep and convince him of the worthiness of our cause. Help me escape this prison tonight, Dark Majesty, and I will do the rest. Kittyara fell silent. She waited expectantly, though she was not sure for what. Some sort of sign, perhaps, that the goddess had heard her bargain, accepted her deal. 
She'd seen the priests receive such signs, or so they claimed, flames flaring upon the altar, blood seeping from solid stone. She had always assumed these were nothing more than tricks. Her little brother, Raislin, had taught her how such fakery could be accomplished. Kittyara did not believe in miracles, yet she had asked for one. Perhaps that was the reason no sign came. The darkness remained dark. She heard no voice, heard nothing except her beating heart. Kit sat back down. She felt foolish, but also calm, the calm of despair. She had only now to wait for death. 7. The White Bear, the Ice Folk The day that started out disastrously for Kittyara proved better for her rival. Lorana had asked the Griffins to take them to Ice Reach, and the Griffins did so, though they refused to go near Ice Wall Castle, telling her it was inhabited by a white dragon. The Griffins made it clear they did not fear the dragon, but said they would have difficulty fighting a dragon while carrying riders. The Griffins told Lorana she and her companions would need help if they were going to remain in this region, stating they would not survive long without shelter, food, and heavier clothing. The land was inhabited by nomadic humans known as the Ice Folk, who might be able to assist them if they could convince the people they had no hostile intent. Once they crossed the sea and were over the glacier, several griffins left the group to scout, keeping an eye out for the dragon and searching for the Ice Folk. The scouts soon returned to say they had found the nomad encampment. The griffins deposited their riders at some distance from the camp, for they feared if the ice folk saw the great winged beasts, they would turn against the strangers immediately. The ice folk have no love for Fiel Thas, the griffin told Lorana, as they made ready to depart, telling her the wizard and his Thanoi had been waging war on the nomads for the past few months. The griffin left her with a final warning. Make friends with the ice folk. They were fierce warriors who would be valuable allies, deadly foes. After the griffins departed, the group sought shelter in the ruins of a large sailboat that appeared to have crashed and overturned on the ice. The boat was like nothing any of them had ever seen, for it was made to sail on ice, not water. Large runners carved of wood were attached to the hull. When the sail was hoisted, the boat would apparently skim over the surface of the ice. The boat's hull offered some protection from the frigid wind, though not from the bone-chilling, flesh-numbing cold. The group discussed how best to approach the ice folk. According to the griffins, most of the nomads spoke common, for during the summer months, when the fishing was good, they would sell their fish in the markets of Rigget. Elistan proposed sending Lorana to speak to them, due to her diplomatic skills. Derek objected saying that they had no way of knowing how the ice folk felt about elves, or if they had even seen an elf. They were huddled together in the wreckage of the boat, arguing, or trying to argue, their mouths were stiff from cold and it was difficult to talk, when the argument was interrupted by a hoarse cry, a roaring and bellowing sound as of some creature in pain. Ordering the rest to stay in the boat, Derek and his knights left to see what was wrong. Tasselhoff immediately chased after the knights, Sturm chased after Tass, and Flint went with him. Gilthanus said he did not trust Derek, and he followed, accompanied by Elistan, who thought he might be of some use. Lorana had no intention of remaining behind alone, and thus the entire group trailed after Derek, much to his ire. 
they came upon an enormous white bear being attacked by two Kapak draconians who were jabbing at the bear with spears. The bear was on her hind legs, roaring and batting at the spears with enormous paws. Red blood marred the bear's white fur. Lorana wondered why the bear did not simply run off, and then she saw the reason. The bear was trying to protect two white cubs who crouched together behind her. So the foul lizards are here, too, Flint stated dourly. He fumbled at his axe, trying to draw it from its harness on his back. His gloved hands were clumsy from the cold, and he dropped it. The axe fell to the ice with a clang. At the sound, the draconians halted their attack and looked over their shoulders. Seeing themselves vastly outnumbered, they turned and started to run. They've seen us, said Derek. Don't let them get back to report. Aaron, your bow. Aaron removed his bow from his shoulder. Like Flint, the knight's hands were chilled to the bone, and he could not force his stiffened fingers to grasp the arrow. Derek drew his sword and started to run for the draconians, shouting for Brian to come with him. The knights slipped and slithered over the ice. The draconians, getting far better traction with their clawed feet, soon outdistanced them, disappearing into the white wilderness. Derek came back, cursing beneath his breath. The white bear had collapsed and lay bleeding on the ice. Her cubs pawed her wounded body, trying to urge her to get up. Heedless of Derek's shouts that the wounded bear would attack him, Elistan walked over to kneel at the bear's side. The bear growled weakly at him, bared her teeth, and tried to raise her head, but she was too weak. Murmuring to her comfortingly, Elistan placed his hands on the bear, who seemed soothed by his touch. She gave a great groaning sigh and relaxed. The draconians will be back, Derek stated impatiently. The creature is dying. There is nothing we can do. We should leave before they return in greater numbers. I'm going to put a stop to this. Do not disturb Elistan at his prayers, sir, said Sturm. And when it seemed Derek was going to ignore him, Sturm placed a restraining hand on Derek's arm. Derek glared at him, and Sturm removed his hand, but he remained standing between the knight and Elistan. Derek muttered something and walked off. Aaron went with him, while Brian remained to watch. As Elistan prayed, the gaping wounds and bloody gashes in the bear's chest and flanks closed over. Brian gasped and said softly to Sturm, How did he do that? Elistan would say that he did nothing. It is the god who brings about this miracle, Sturm replied with a smile. You believe in this? said Brian, gesturing toward Elistan. It is difficult not to, Sturm replied. When the proof is before your eyes. Brian wanted to ask more. He wanted to ask Sturm if he prayed to Paladine, but asking such a personal question would be ill-mannered, and therefore Brian kept silent. He had another reason. If Derek found out Sturm Brightblade believed in these gods and actually prayed to them, it would be yet another black mark against him. The bear was starting to try to regain her feet. She was still a wild beast with young to protect, and Elistan prudently and hastily backed away, dragging Tasselhoff, who had been making friends with the bear cubs. The group returned to the boat. Glancing back, they saw the bear on all fours, starting to lumber off, her cubs crowding near her. Derek and Aaron were talking over the fact that Draconians were this far south. The Draconians must be in the service of Biel Thos, Derek was saying. They will report back to him that three Salamnic knights are now in ice reach. 
I am sure that this news will have the High Lord shaking in his fur-lined boots, said Aaron dryly. He will guess we are here after the Dragon Orb, said Derek, and he will send his troops to attack us. Why should he immediately jump to the conclusion that we're after the Orb? Aaron demanded. Just because you are obsessed with this artifact, Derek, doesn't mean everyone is. Did you two see that? Brian cried excitedly, joining them. Look, the bear is walking around. Elistan healed her wounds. You are such an innocent, Brian, said Derek caustically. You never fail to fall for some charlatan's tricks. The bear's wounds were only superficial. Anyone could see that. No, Derek, you're wrong, Brian began. But he was interrupted by Aaron, who took hold of each man's arm and gripped it tightly, warningly. Look around, slowly. The knights turned to see a group of warriors, clad in skins and furs, heading their way. The warriors were armed with spears, and some of them held strange-looking axes that glistened in the chill sunshine, as though they were made of crystal. Get everyone into the boat, Derek ordered. We can use that for cover. Brian ran back, shouting at the others, yelling at them to run for the boat. He grabbed hold of Tasselhoff and hustled him off. Flint, Gilthanus, and Lorana hurried after them. Sturm assisted Elistan, who was having difficulty keeping his footing. The warriors continued to advance. Aaron began blowing on his hands, trying to warm them so he could use his bow. Flint peered out over the hull, fingering his axe and staring cautiously at the odd-looking axes of the enemy. These must be the ice folk the Griffins mentioned, said Lorana, hastening up to Derek. We should try to talk to them, not fight them. I will go, Elistan offered. It's too dangerous, said Derek. Elistan looked at Tasselhoff, who was blue with the cold and shaking so badly that his pouches rattled. The others were not much better. I think the most urgent matter we face now is from freezing to death, Elistan said. I do not think I will be in danger. These warriors have not rushed to the attack as they would have if they thought we were with the armies of the High Lord. Derek considered this. Very well, but I will be the one to talk to them. If you will allow me to go, Sir Derek, it would be more prudent, said Elistan mildly. If anything should happen to me, you will be needed here. Derek gave an abrupt nod. We will cover you, he said seeing that Aaron had managed to warm his fingers enough to be able to use his bow. He had an arrow knocked and ready. Lorana stood close to Tasselhoff, pressing the shivering Kender against her body and wrapping her coat around him. They watched in tense silence as Elistan raised his arms to show he carried no weapons and walked out from the shelter of the boat. The warriors saw him, several pointed at him, the lead warrior, an enormous man with flaming red hair that seemed the only color in this white world, saw him too. The lead warrior kept going and urged his warriors forward. Look at that, Aaron exclaimed suddenly, pointing. Elistan, Brian called a warning. The white bear is following you. Elistan glanced around. The bear was trotting over the ice on all fours, her cubs running along behind her. Elistan, come back! Lorana cried fearfully. Too late, said Derek grimly. He would never make it. Aaron, shoot the bear. Aaron raised his bow. He started to pull back the string, but his arm jerked, and he lost his grip. Let go of me, he cried angrily. No one has hold of you, said Brian. Aaron glanced around. 
Flint and Sturm were standing on the other side of the boat. Tasselhoff, the most likely suspect, was shivering in Lorana's grasp. Ryan stood next to Derek, and Gilthanus was over beside Flint. Aaron looked foolish. Sorry. He shook his head, muttered, I could have sworn I felt someone. He lifted the bow again. The bear was on Elistan's heels. The warriors had seen the animal as well, and now their red-bearded leader called a halt. Elistan must have heard the warning shouts. He must have heard the beast scrabbling over the ice close behind him. But if he did, he did not turn. He kept walking. Shoot, Derek ordered, rounding on Aaron furiously. I can't, Aaron gasped. He was sweating despite the cold. His hand grasped the arrow. His arm shook with his great effort, but he didn't fire. Someone has hold of my arm. No, someone doesn't, said Tasselhoff between chatters. Should one of us tell him? Hush, said Lorana softly. The bear reared up on her hind legs, towering over Elistan. She lifted up her great paws, held them over him, and gave a great bellowing roar. The leader of the warriors gazed long at the bear, then, turning around, he made a motion to his men. One by one, they threw their weapons onto the ice. The red-bearded warrior walked slowly toward Elistan. The bear relaxed down on all fours, though she still kept her gaze fixed upon the warriors. The red-bearded man had bright blue eyes and a large nose. His face was seamed and weathered. His voice rumbled like an avalanche. He spoke common, though with a thick accent. He gestured at the bear. The bear has been hurt. She is covered with blood. Did you do this? He asked Elistan. If I did, would she walk with me? Elistan returned. The bear was attacked by draconians, these valiant knights. He pointed at Derek and the others who had come out from the shelter of the boat. Chased them off. They saved the bear's life. The warrior grunted. He eyed Elistan, and he eyed the bear, and then he lowered his spear. He bowed to the bear and spoke to her in his own language. Reaching into a leather pouch he had tied to his belt, he threw some bits of fish to the bear, who ate them with relish. Then, rounding up her cubs, the bear lumbered away, heading at a rapid pace over the glacier. The white bear is the guardian of our tribe, the warrior stated. You are fortunate she vouched for you. Otherwise, we would have killed you. We do not like strangers. As it is, you will be our honored guests. I swear to you, Derek, Aaron was saying as the knights went to meet Alistan. It was as if someone had hold of me in a grip of iron. Good thing, too, remarked Brian. If you'd killed that bear, we would all be dead now. Bah, he's missing his liquor, that's all, said Derek in disgust. He's having a drunkard's dream. I am not, said Aaron, speaking with dangerous calm. You know me better than that, Derek. Someone had hold of my arm. Brian caught Elistan's eye. The cleric smiled and winked. The ice folk made them welcome. They offered them smoked fish and water. One took off his own thick fur coat to wrap around the half-frozen kender. The red-bearded warrior was their chief and he refused to talk or answer any of their questions, saying they were all in danger of frostbite. He hustled the group back to the camp, which consisted of small, snug tents made out of animal hides stretched over portable frames. Trickles of smoke rose from the center holes in each tent. The heart of the camp 
was a longhouse known as the chief tent. Long and narrow, the chief tent was made of furs and hides draped over the large ribcage of some dead sea beast whose carcass had been frozen in the ice. The small tents were used only for sleeping, being too cramped for much else. The ice folk spent most of their time either fishing the glacial pools or in the chief tent. Those gathered in the chief tent sewed hides, braided and repaired nets, hammered fish hooks, fashioned spear and arrowheads, and performed countless other tasks. Men, women, and children worked together, and while they worked, someone would tell a story, or the group would sing, discuss the fishing prospects, or share the latest gossip. Little children played underfoot. Older children had their tasks to perform. In this harsh climb, the tribe's survival depended on every person doing his part. The ice folk gave their guests clothing designed for living on the glacier, and they snuggled thankfully into the warm fur coats, slipped their feet into thick fur-lined boots, and thrust their chilled hands into heavy gloves. Lorana was given a tent of her own. The three knights shared another, and Sturm, Flint, and Tass had a tent to themselves. Elistan was on his way to his tent when he found his way blocked by an elderly man with a long white beard, heavily bundled and wrapped in furs and a gray robe. All that could be seen of him was a hawk-like nose poking out of a gray cowl and two glittering eyes. The old man planted himself squarely in Elistan's path. Elistan halted obligingly and stood smiling down at the old man whose bent body did not come to his shoulder. The old man snatched off a fur glove, revealing a gnarled hand with enlarged joints, permanently crooked fingers, and spider webs of blue veins. He lifted his hand toward the medallion Elistan wore around his neck. He did not touch it. His hand, shaking with a mild palsy, paused near it. Elistan took hold of the medallion, removed it, and pressed it into the old man's hand. You have waited long and patiently for this, haven't you, my friend? Elistan said quietly. I have, said the old man, and two tears trickled down his cheeks and were lost in his fur collar. My father waited, and his father waited before him, and his father before him. Is it true? Have the gods returned? He looked up anxiously at Elistan. They never left us, Elistan said. Ah, said the old man after a moment, I think I understand. You will come to my tent and tell me all that you know. The two walked off together, deep in conversation, and disappeared into a tent slightly larger than the others that stood near the chief tent. Lorana sat for a time alone in her tent. Her grief burned, her sorrow ached, but she no longer felt as though she was lost at the bottom of a dark well, with the light so far above her that she could not reach it. Looking back on the past several days, she could not remember much about them, and she was ashamed. She saw clearly that she had been walking a terrible path, one that might have led to self-destruction. She remembered with horror how for a brief moment she had wished the stranger in Tarsus would kill her. The griffins had saved her. This frozen, white, stark world had saved her. Paladine in his mercy had saved her. Like the white bear, she had come back to life. She would always love Tannis, always mourn him, always think of him, but she resolved now that she would work for him, work in his name to bring about the victory over darkness he had died fighting to achieve.
Lorona said a silent prayer, giving thanks to Paladine, then went to join the others in the chief tent. Peat fires burned at intervals in the tent, the smoke rising through the holes in the ceiling. The ice folks sat cross-legged on the floor on furs and hides, going about their work. Their songs and tales were silenced, however, as they listened to the conversation their chief was holding with the strangers. The chief's name was Harold Hawken. He spoke to Derek, who had taken it upon himself to announce he was the group's leader. Flint huffed at this, but was quieted by Sturm. You said draconians attacked the bear, Harold said. I have not heard of such creatures. What are they? Monstrous beings never before seen on Ancelon, Derek replied. They walk upright like men, yet they have scales, wings, and the claws of dragons. Harold nodded, scowling. Ah, so that's who you meant. Dragon men, we call them. The foul wizard, Fiel Thos, brought these monsters to Icewall Castle, along with a white dragon. None of us had ever seen a dragon before now, though we have heard tales that they lived here in ancient times. None of us knew what the great white beast was until Ragged the Elder told us. Even he did not know these dragon men, however. Who is Raggart? Derek asked. Raggart Knug, our priest, Harold replied. He is the eldest among us. He reads the signs and portents. He tells us when the weather is about to change, when to leave the pools before they are fished out, and he shows us where to search for new ones. He warns us when our enemies are coming, so that we may prepare for battle. Is this man a priest of the white bear, then? Harold was clearly put out. He glared at Derek. What do you take us for, Salomnik? Savages? We do not worship bears. The bear is our tribal guardian, honored and respected, but not a god. Harold had a temper to match his fiery hair, it seemed. He muttered to himself in his own language, shaking his hairy head at Derek, who said many times he was sorry for the mistake. Eventually, the chief calmed down. We worship no gods at the moment, Harold continued. The true gods left us, and we wait for them to return. That could happen at any time, according to Raggart. The white dragon is a portent, he says. By the true gods, do you mean Paladine, Meshachal, and Takesis? Sturm asked, interested. We know them by other names, Harold replied, though I have heard them called such by the fisher folk in Rigget. If those are the old gods, then yes, it is for their return we wait. Lorana looked about for Elistan, thinking he would be interested in this, but he had not come with them into the tent, and she did not know where he had gone. Derek steered the conversation to the dragon high lord Fiel Foss. Harold said that Fiel Foss had resided in Ice Reach for hundreds of years, and up until now the wizard had kept mostly to himself. Harold had heard that Fiel Foss was calling himself a dragon high lord, but Harold knew nothing about that nor did he know anything about dragon armies or the war raging in other parts of Ancelon. I care nothing either, he said, waving it away with his large hand. We are locked in a never-ending war waged on a daily basis, 